Well, good morning, church family. And uh, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I was just so delighted to get the opportunity to worship with you. My name's Randy, and I'm uh, privileged to be the lead minister here at the church and just want to extend to you a welcome here at Windsor Road. Do you remember your first day on the job? You do, don't you? I mean, do you? Wow, it's like, well, wow, wait a minute. You know, uh, I, I thought, I mean, I, this is not what we talked about in the interview. It's not what the brochure said. My first day on the job, my very first day on the job, July 12th, 1989. Right? Uh, the interest rate on my house that I bought on Victor Street at the time, 10 and a third percent. I know, that hurts, doesn't it, right? Yeah, but I didn't know any different. So it was our first house. And our son Ben was uh, eight months old. And so July 12th, 1989, got my books in my office. And I had my computer set up, my computer. <laughs> my computer, my IBM XT computer. It had, a, it had a colossal hard drive, 20 megabytes. I'm not kidding you. My, I bought it from my brother-in-law for $500. It was four years old. He bought it brand new, $4,000, all right, 20 megabytes. It had two floppy drives in it. I mean, this thing was a senior minister's computer. I'm getting it set up. I'm getting my books set up, all right? First day on the job, get there at 8. Things are getting organized. And, and all of a sudden, and I was in an office that I could look out the window to see Windsor Road, where I was. And I look out the window, and there was an accident. It was a single car accident. That was before Scottsdale came into Windsor Road. And it was before the subdivision was even. There was one sole farmhouse, farm field, and then you could see the school. And there was this single car accident, and a family from our church, two small boys, and thank goodness there were no injuries. The only thing that was injured was just like the car. Uh, but I mean, I was thinking to myself, well, this was just before noon on my first day. I don't remember studying this in seminary. I don't remember preparing for this. But that's just kind of the way it is sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you, you have head knowledge about what you think the job's going to be like, but, but then, you know, life happens. And reality happens, and then you have to deal with that, okay? First day on the job, before noon. Today, in our scripture, we are going to look at Moses' first day on the job. It's his first day on the job. First day when God calls him into ministry to deliver God's people from Egypt and we're going to see what happens 
on his very first day. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 5. Take your Bibles, and if you'll turn to page 48 in your church Bibles, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take the copy that's in the pouch in front of you, put your name in it, call it yours, and receive it as a gift from the church family. Moses' first day didn't quite go the way he thought it would. And I think we're going to see this here as we read. It's 23 verses, but I want to read the whole chapter. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they have made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they're idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters has set over them, were beaten and were asked, why, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and, and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then, the Lord, uh, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, 
Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is God's word. Amen? First day on the job. Moses' obedience to God makes matters worse, which led to discouragement. And when the servant of the Lord is doing the work of the Lord and encounters discouragement, what next? What does that servant need most? Well, that's what we learn in this section of Scripture. And, um, you know, this is why this matters. If you intend to follow God, if you intend to do the work of the Lord, you should expect resistance. You should expect discouragement. You should expect that. And some of us think, you know, I, I, I thought God wanted me to do X, Y, Z. I'm doing X, Y, Z. And, 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 and it's a, a mess has occurred. And, and what these verses are going to teach us is that the, the lack of instant success is often the mark of a divine calling. You see, Exodus is not just the history of Israel, but Exodus is a mirror in which God you know, looks at our lives. And what we see through this entire book is, well, three irrefutable truths. Uh, wherever you live is Egypt. You're in Egypt right now, wherever you are. Truth number two, there is a promised land. There is. And truth number three, the path to the promised land from Egypt is the wilderness. And your wilderness... Well, when you're there, what do you need most? What do you need most? Moses, Moses goes through the wilderness before any of the Israelites go through the wilderness. He, he goes through the wilderness twice. He goes through the wilderness before he rescues them, and then he goes through the wilderness after he rescues them. But here is a wilderness that Moses is going through, and he learns very quickly that what he thought would help him isn't going to help him. But God, by his grace, offers true help. And that grace is available for us, too. When the servant of the Lord, doing the work of the Lord, encounters severe discouragement, and if you live for God, you're going to get discouraged. Now, what do you need in the midst of that? These verses tell us. Well, let's get to work. Moses sets out with the shepherd's staff and the Lord's name. 
and he leaves his father-in-law. He reunites with Aaron, and together they speak with Israel and show signs and wonders that the Lord had given Moses. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, it says that Israel believed and bowed and worshiped. And the people believed, verse 31, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had uh, seen uh, uh, their affliction and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And so momentum is building. Uh, Moses has left Midian. He's there in Egypt. He's accompanied by Aaron. He has his staff. He's talked with Israel. They believe. They bow. They worship. Centuries of slavery are about to end. Moses had met up with God, and the pace is picking up, and this, this anonymous shepherd of Midia is now gone public, and the people are encouraged, and you can just kind of feel the energy and the buzz and the expectation. We're going to be out of this place by Thanksgiving. Let's go. And so Moses and Aaron, they march into Pharaoh's throne room with this demand, chapter 5, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Silence. Followed by this question. Uh, who is the Lord? Pharaoh says. And, and, and who are you talking about? Uh, I don't know the Lord. I don't, I don't know the Lord. Oh, and by the way, no, you can't go. Nada. Yet. None. Uh-uh. Not going to happen. Verse 2. Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And, and, so, and so Moses sort of backpedals and, and kind of softens the pitch with, well, I mean, it's okay, the God of the Hebrews, that's, that's who we're talking about. And he, he wants to take us on a three-day journey to the place where he, he calls us to, to worship. And, the, you know, the <laughs> Moses... Aaron, what, what is this? What is it? Who scheduled this appointment anyway? Why are you taking them away from their jobs? Get, get back to work. What's all this let my people go talk? They're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. In fact, if you have, if you have so much time daydreaming about your freedom, you obviously have too much time on your hands. I, I, you're not working hard enough. So I'm going to fix that. From here on out, you go get your own straw. Straw was a binding agent for the bricks. So, so from now on, you, 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 know, you, you go plant the straw, grow the straw, cut the straw, haul the straw, mix it with the mud. You're going to be in charge of all that from now on. Oh, 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 and by the way, the quota of bricks is unchanged. I've got cities to build, and you're going you're gonna to make the bricks to build them, and that's the way it's going to be. Verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and, and pay no regard to lying words. Lie, they're calling Moses a liar, which means they're calling the Lord a liar. Get it done. And so there's this domino effect that occurs. Do you see it? Pharaoh issues the order to his Egyptian taskmasters who then pass it on to the foreman of the workers. And you have to understand, the foreman of the workers are Hebrew. So it's not that the Egyptian taskmasters 
were the ones who actually beat the Hebrew workers. The Egyptian taskmasters beat the Hebrew foremen who then beat the Hebrew workers. You see? See what's going on here? Get it done, verse 13. Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. I mean, that theme is repeated all throughout chapter 5. This is the way it's going to be. And, 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 and when the foremen were beaten for not meeting the quota, I mean, they, they cry out to Pharaoh, why are you doing this to us? And Pharaoh has one word, lazy. You're just lazy. Verse 17, you are idle. You are idle. See the repetition there? That's for emphasis. You get to work. And just then Moses and Aaron leave the palace. <laughs> and the Hebrew foremen were waiting for them. Verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge you. You, you made us a stench before Pharaoh. You, you want him to kill us. And then Moses turns to the Lord. <laughs> There's all this domino effect that's occurring. What have, you, what, have you, what have you done? What have you, you've done evil to us. Why'd you ever send me? I mean, since I came, to, I came in your name to speak in your name, you've done nothing at all. First day at work. Oh. I mean, can you feel his frustration, though? I mean, I, who wouldn't be frustrated? You know, on the one hand, God had told Moses, right? Didn't he say, you will go, Israel will listen, Pharaoh will be hardened, Egypt will be plagued, and they will give you gold and jewelry on the way out. And so, so Moses obeyed, and Israel believed, and hope was rising. But, but on the other hand, um, did Moses really think he was going to sashay into Pharaoh's office and demand the release of Israel and talk the nation's leader into surrendering the core economic engine of Egypt? <laughs> did he just assume that Israel's deliverance was going to be easy and effortless? Just, just because God says so, Pharaoh's going to do this? Talk, talk about, and it's a phrase, noble naivety. Noble naivety. It, it, it's noble, we, you know, we have, we think about the job that we want to do. We think about, say, if it's teaching, we want to transform lives, that's noble. But then we have this idealistic vision, and that's, we don't take into account that, you know, that you, parents can be difficult, that parent-teacher conferences, and then, Students can be difficult, and the system can be difficult, and you get into medicine because you want to heal, but then you realize that you know, patients can be stubborn, and you've got to keep your eye on a computer screen while you're talking with the band. There's just this, the, the, the system kind of tends to take over, and very quickly the naivety goes out. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. And, and when he says, I don't know the Lord, he's not asking for more information. He, he's not 
inviting Moses into a spiritual conversation. And it's not that he didn't know there was a Hebrew God. Who is the Lord means, I don't acknowledge your Lord. I don't acknowledge your God. I don't respect your God. I'm God. I'm God. And I'm stronger than your God. And do you know how I know that? Because you're my slave. That's how I know that. If your God were stronger, I'd be your slave. <laughs> let my people go. I'm going to let you get back to work. That's what I'm going to let you do. I'm going to let you gather your own straw. And you get back to the bricks. I mean, he didn't even consider their request to go out into the wilderness. I mean, he's, he, Egypt was one of the most spiritually religious nations, and they believed in many gods, and he understood that there would be times for worship and days off. But this Pharaoh has no regard for Israel's God. And to punish Israel for even making the request, he piles on the work. And Pharaoh is crafty. He has built this system of oppression in which the oppressed blame one another. Did you see that? Now the Hebrews are starting to blame each other. Moses gets blamed, and then God gets blamed, and, and they're, they're, they're just infighting. And one of the cardinal rules of politics is that when your political opponents are fighting one another, never get involved. Never get involved, because the more energy they spend fighting each other, the less energy will be spent fighting you. Pharaoh, he's smart. I mean, he, I mean Pharaoh, Pharaoh has Israel accusing God's deliverer to actually be under God's judgment. The Lord judge you. You've made us a stench. It's your fault. We were doing so well, Moses, until you came along. Now, do you see what just happened? Do you see what Pharaoh has done? He has manipulated Israel into defining freedom down. They've become so accustomed to their slavery, they can't imagine what true freedom is. To Israel, true freedom is not liberation from oppression for worship and service to the one true God. True freedom is not pursuing God's destiny as a nation. True freedom is not assuming God's divine purpose for their nation to be his priestly representatives as a light of the world, showing the nations what a quality of life and holiness would be like, unlike any the world had ever known. No, no. To Israel... True freedom is not having to haul your own hay. True freedom is having your captors provide the straw while you're, you churn out bricks for them. That's what Pharaoh's got them believing true freedom is. My Lord. What I'm trying to tell you is that life apart from the Lord leads us to be far too easily pleased. Remember what C.S. Lewis said in his book of essays, The Weight of Glory? He said, he said, it would seem that our Lord 
refines our desires, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. My Lord. So now Moses has a two-front war. You see that? He's dealing with a stubborn king who refuses to acknowledge the one true God, and then he's dealing with a stubborn nation <laughs> who's questioning his calling. So can you see? Can you see how quickly, you know, worship and hope and promise and confidence can quickly degenerate into blame and criticism at the first sign of resistance. In, in, in chapter 4, verse 31, Moses is a hero. In chapter 5, verse 21, he's a zero. And chapter 4 concludes with hope. Chapter 5 concludes with hopelessness. Pharaoh has the upper hand. Israel is far too easily pleased, and Moses is disillusioned in the wilderness of his first day at work. Brothers and sisters, sometimes doing God's will will make matters worse. Hmm. Oh, preacher, would you give me some hope? Yeah, it's about time for some hope, isn't it? What is, what, what's he need? You know what he needs? He needs chapter 6. <laughs> That's what he needs. He, he, he needs chapter, but let me, before we go there, let, let me just say this for just a moment, because look, look, look at verses 22 and 23. What, what Moses says to God, right? Why have you done evil? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. You've not done that to people. <laughs> you know what? The best person to take your complaint to is the Lord. Best person, okay? It's not Facebook. All right? No, you all would not do that, would you? Nobody would do that. Well, maybe second service. I'll talk to them. I'll save this section for them. We wouldn't do that. But, the, but no, I'm serious. The Lord, he's, he is the best person. You take, people would say, well, Moses, is, he's not having faith. No, I would argue that he is having faith because this is, he's praying. That's, this is a prayer. You keep praying. You, 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 keep, you keep speaking your lament and your discouragement and your disillusionment to God. You do that because God can take it. All right? But here's what I want us to remember. When we do, please be prepared for his tsunami-like response. Because when he responds, it will be as to Job. 
You remember the book of Job? 35 chapters of, of, of two verses. If you read those two verses, you've read, the, you've read 35 chapters. I'm saving you time. I've 35 chapters of Job, two verses at the end of chapter 5 in the book of Exodus. All right. I mean, he just, he just belts it out to God. He wants God to show up. He wants God. And then finally, Job chapter 38 says, And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. <laughs> who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? God says. Yeah. And Job knew right then he was in over his head. And God said, no, 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 no. You come back here. You want to talk. You want to talk? We're going to actually, I'm going to talk, and you're going to listen. And that's what we see in Exodus chapter 6. Moses laments and, and complains. And the Lord responds. And in chapter 6, the Lord the Lord doesn't answer Moses' accusations. He doesn't even acknowledge what happened in chapter 5, does he? He doesn't. He does one thing. He reminds Moses, I am. I am the Lord. Pharaoh disrespected you and me. I am the Lord. Pharaoh says we're lazy. I am the Lord. Pharaoh thinks I stink. I am the Lord. Verses 2 through 8. In chapter 6, it's actually a poem. It's a spoken word poem. God sings his identity. I have appeared. I have established. I have heard. I have remembered. I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take you. I will bring you into the land. I will be your God. I am the Lord. That's what you need to know, Moses. When we obediently serve the Lord and then suffer discouragement for the inevitable resistance that will come our way, naive nobility becomes tempered trust because God responds not by lightening the load, not even by comforting your hurt feelings over the personal attacks of others. Rather, the Lord responds by reminding us who he is. And what he's promised to do, he strips us of our naive fantasies in order to forge in us a gritty, tempered trust. Because you see, church families, God not only wants to rescue Israel out of Egypt, he wants to take Egypt out of Israel. And he wants to take Egypt out of Moses he wants to shape Moses, so, so he strips Moses of everything except himself. I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 to 28, the scripture that refers to Sinai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What, what, what that passage is doing is trying to get us to believe to the core of our souls that there are some things that are shaken and some things that can't be shaken. And there will come a day the Lord will speak and the earth will shake. He will shake the earth. He will shake your job. He will shake your education. He will shake your health. He will shake your bank account. He will shake your looks. He will shake your retirement. And when he does, the only thing that's real is what can't be shaken. And verses 2 through 8 in Exodus chapter 6, that can't be shaken. And if you, if you will anchor your life, if you will put steel hooks into verses 2 through 8, you will have life that is truly life. You will. Some of you have a copy of the version called The Message. It's written by a pastor named Eugene Peterson. He passed away this week. He's sort of a pastor's pastor. And in one of his books, this is what he wrote. He said, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. That there's something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. And that means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response. The one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. And the Lord speaks. And after he speaks in Exodus chapter 6, he sends Moses' Aaron back. You go back. I am. Now you go and you speak. You go back to the stubborn king who enslaves a stubborn people, and you go back and you tell them my word. You tell them, I am the Lord. Let my people go. I have. Tell them again. But I, I tell them again. Tell them again. Why do we sing each week? Why do we study God's word each week? Why do we have communion each week? I've heard it said, not recently, but over 29 years here. I had, communion kind of gets old. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point. The point is we keep, we keep going back to the table. We keep going back to those emblems. We keep going back to the reminder that who we are is because of the initiate, how God has taken the initiative and forgiven us and cleansed us and given us his Holy Spirit and made us the new Israel, made us his sons and heirs and daughters of the kingdom, made us into a church. I will build my church, Jesus said. That's why we do these familiar acts of worship. I am the Lord, and my deliverance will come in a way so that you will not only believe me, 
but that you will desire me more. You, like, you know, don't you, that if God wanted to, he could have just sent angels to the rescue, scooping down, scooping up Israel and transporting them to Sinai and then, you know, paratrooping them to Canaan. He could have done that. He can do anything. Yet there's something in the manner of his rescue that causes his people not only to witness his power, but to desire him more. Yet mountain climbers, you know, if they really want to get to the top, they can take a helicopter. But there's something about that path that forges steel in them that makes the top even more delicious. And Jesus could say to Satan, go to hell. And Satan would. And one day he will. But through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Christ conquers Satan not by putting him out of existence, but by letting him live and witness the massive repentance of billions who turn their lives over to the one true king and find forgiveness in the blood of the lamb. Satan himself witnesses the people of God rejecting him for the greater beauty of the gospel. I'm telling you, the gospel declares not only that God is stronger, but God is more desirable. And what's happening in Exodus 5 and 6 is a process through which God shows his people and specifically his servant Moses, oh God, I want you more. I, so then church family, hear me. Let us shame Pharaoh by making much of Yahweh. Let us shame Satan by exalting and desiring Christ. Let us belittle the devil by magnifying Jesus. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. Hallelujah. I'm done. <laughs> mm. 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 God, we want you, we desire you, who are we that you have shown us this grace and mercy, your love, you love us because you are love and you rescued us, put us into this church family. Create in us more and more and more desire. Desire for you. Desire for your truth. Desire for your path. In, in, this, in this unruly world of violence and murder, in places where we never thought it would take place, places of worship now become just death zones. God, we pray for help. We pray to desire you more. Thank you that your word feeds us and strengthens us. Thank you for the wilderness 
so that we would depend on nothing else but you. Be glorified, Jesus. In life and death, in sickness and health, be glorified. And God's people said,